What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Today on the podcast, our guests are two experts on the whole world of Game of Thrones. They'll weigh in on the big season finale. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. This is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. Today, my guests are Elio M. Garcia, Jr. and Linda Antonsen. They're the co-authors of The World of Ice and Fire, along with George R. R. Martin. They're also the heads of Westeros.org, a website on everything about the world of Game of Thrones. And today, we're going to talk about the season finale of Game of Thrones, the sixth season finale, which everybody's talking about. Elio and Linda, thanks for talking to me. Our pleasure. Very much our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Okay, a lot of people are talking about one of the themes of the last couple episodes of the show, and maybe the whole show, which is powerful women. You're seeing people like Cersei and Arya and the Sand Snakes. They're asserting themselves. But they're really, even though that's one of the themes, it seems to me another theme is that not all these women are good. I mean, they they have differing degrees of morality, and you really see it on display, especially in the last couple episodes. What are your thoughts about that whole theme? Well, it's certainly interesting that they've decided to go for that kind of theme this season, given the complaints that have been leveled against the show in previous seasons. And personally, I think perhaps that if it is a reaction to that, that they may have pushed it a little too far in some respects because some of these characters have perhaps been lauded for taking strong actions that were uh, rather brutal and uh, not necessarily good choices to make. Right. Cersei Lannister, um, she's a case in point. In this final episode of the show, we see her kill all her enemies, kill bystanders, uh, kill poor old Marjorie. Uh, we see her torture a septa um, by means of the mountain. She does a really a lot of horrible things, and sure, she's a strong woman, but she's pretty despicable in a lot of ways. And yet, I think the audience is kind of rooting for her in a way, right? I mean, is that a good thing? It is a bit strange how they've built this up with Cersei. I think that uh, they've uh, they've on the show compared to the books, they've taken away some of the rough edges that Cersei had from the beginning. And that yes, she's done despicable things even from the beginning on the show. But for example, they gave the murder of Robert Bastard to Joffrey instead of Cersei, and they've tried to build her up as a more of a sympathetic character. Uh, which may make this sort of descent into madness that she is what she is really experiencing towards the end here of this season. Um, it really should be something where you're taking a step back and saying, whoa, this is, this is, this is going too far. This character is really uh, out of control. It's not so much about her asserting her position uh, as a woman. It's just, uh, you know, she's taking revenge on everything and everyone rather indiscriminately. Is that a problem when you sort of try to make a book fit into sort of TV 
tropes where you know characters become sympathetic in some ways. Um, they become less crazy than they are in the books. I mean, oh, Cersei, what she does in this last episode really it echoes of what her father, the Mad King, did. You know, you know, burn them all, and she and she, you know, it was a famous quote attributed to him. And here she is. She unleashes wildfire and literally burns everybody in sight in one of the one of the worst massacres in the series, and the series is a history of pretty bad massacres. So is that a problem that you see going forward for the to, for the TV version of Game of Thrones, that it's not going to live up to the books because it can't have the harsh, hard, sharp edges that the book had? I think that with a character like Cersei in particular, I think they felt that going with the portrayal that she has in the books, people would feel that it's a little too... Um, not not quite a modern portrayal, perhaps, of a woman in the sense that they would feel that, oh, she's too much of a pure villain, and you know now you're casting a woman as the villain again. So I think there was a bit of a pushback against making her quite as uh, villainous as she is, because I mean, one of the things that we learn in the books is that you know she has that vision, and they include that, or rather she goes to that fortune teller, and they include that on the show where she finds out about her future, and she has a friend with her. Uh, and in the books, she actually ends up pushing that friend down a well when they're both like 12, 13 years old. Uh, this is not the action of somebody who's entirely sane from, from the start. It's not something that has developed through her, you know, difficult marriage and a difficult time with the queen. She, you know, there's bad genes there from the start, you know, and she passed them on to Joffrey as well. Uh, so I think that... Um, it does lack some of some of those elements. I think being able to, I mean, the show and the books has you know gray characters, and it's been one of the strengths of the books that it has a lot of gray characters. And Cersei isn't, by all means, you know, a black purely evil character, but she, um, I think that to get her to the point where she would go and burn, uh, you know, a large part of the city or blowing up the Septa Baylor, which you know may happen in a future book. I'm not at all ruling that out, but I would have liked to see more proof of that character early on, perhaps. Okay, so we're talking to the heads of the Game of Thrones website, westeros.org. You've actually worked with George R. R. Martin, co-authored a book with him, The World of Ice and Fire. But I have a question I want to aim at Elio, because uh, it's interesting that Linda is watching the series this this season, season six. But Elio, you have chosen not to. Can you tell me why? Um, a mix of reasons. It's not so much, I mean, everyone assumes that it's sort of the spoiler aspect of it, and it, it's not in a way because I think the show, uh, the things it spoils are things that I already kind of figured out, and the things it's doing are, I just don't feel like they're going to be the same as, as what will happen in novels in terms of the tone and the sort of development of how it how it happens. Uh, mainly it was, I, I just found myself too disappointed in uh, in that fifth season, and I felt like I I spent so much time in the, the last five years writing and talking about the show, but I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore because I wasn't interested enough in the show myself to, to continue with that. Well, that raises a big question for me because everyone knows by now that the books have, uh, that, the, that the TV series has gotten out ahead of the books. Um, George R. R. Martin is now behind his own TV show. We're still waiting for him to release the sixth book in the series, The Winds of Winter. Uh, do you think that having the TV show be out in front of the book is going to hurt the book? I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like back in the day 
if there had been all these uh, movies of The Lord of the Rings before J.R. Tolkien had finished it, it really would have spoiled a, a masterpiece of a book. Do you think it's going to spoil George R. R. Martin's sort of a in-the-works masterpiece here? I, I think uh, in, in a certain way it will have an impact, a, a, a negative impact. There will be certain things that I think it's clear George would have wanted to have out first in his book. At the same time, the story of Game of Thrones on the you know of the TV show is so uh, constrained and limited compared to that of a novel. There's a lot more going on uh, in terms of characters, in terms of plot lines. It's part of the reason that taking so long to write is that there's a lot more going on. Um, they are removing people from the from the board who are uh, still around in the books and will still be around. Uh, or and in some cases they kept some characters that. George killed off, uh, I think when seen as a whole, the spoilers we're going to get, some people will be disappointed, and I think no one will be more disappointed than George. But at the same time, there's so much more to to his story than what's in in Game of Thrones that I think those who appreciate the uh, originality, who appreciate the realism, who appreciate the attention to to character uh, and sort of organic storytelling, they'll still love the Atomic Empire series. Okay, you know, Linda, there's a big moment that happened on the season finale for game for for, uh, for season six that people were talking about the apparent revelation of who Jon Snow's parents really are. And um, in the season finale, Bran has a vision and he sees that uh, apparently that um, that Leanne Stark, the sister of Ned Stark, has a has a baby. And um, uh, and apparently that baby grows up to be John Stark because it cuts they cut between the baby's face and John Stark's face, uh, John Snow's face. Um, do you think? But it seems to me that they don't actually actually say that's John Snow. I mean, they they suggest it, and they don't actually say who the father is really. I mean, they suggest that it maybe is um, is someone. What do you think of that scene? And who do you think the the parents really are? And does it really tell us who John Snow's parents are? Well, you know, in the fan community around books, there's been the most prominent theory, the most hotly debated theory, that the theory that has had, I don't know, you know, hundreds of pages on our forum dedicated to itself is the one that's been abbreviated as R plus L equals J. And that is Rhaegar plus Lyanna equals John. And personally, you know, for myself and Elio, we've... For a number of years now, we've been saying that, well, yes, technically it's a theory, but we're like 110% certain that it is true. Um, This is something that has been layered into the novels from the very first novel. Uh, It was uh, first discussed back in probably 1996 when the paperback of A Game of Thrones came out. And uh, it's been a popular theory ever since, and it's plenty of evidence for it so what they did differently on the show is of course that they didn't really layer that information in from season one uh, they felt i think that it would be too obvious with tv when you know when you show something it becomes obvious that you draw attention to it so i think they felt that if they started layering the clues in that early people would figure it out too soon um but you know i i do think that that is what they intend to show on 
the show as well. Obviously, they're showing Liana as the mother. Uh, you can actually make out a little bit more of what Liana tells Ned if you listen closely. And that seems to, that, that gives more of a hint as to who the father is. Uh, and so I'm pretty sure they have the same idea about the father on the show as it is in the novel. Oh, I was trying to do that. What else did she say that you've been able to make out? Well, what she says before she says, promise me, Ned, is that she says uh, something about uh, Robert will kill him if he finds out. You know that. Right. And, and that's so, Ro- that Robert is Robert Baratheon. Yeah. So this is something that Robert Baratheon would would hate. And we all know how much he hated the Targaryens. So um, well, great. that well, limits approval. Well, we're going to be right back with a little bit more from Elio and Linda, the heads of Westeros.org and the co-authors, along with George R. R. Martin, of The World of Ice and Fire. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, WSJ Speakeasy. Your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. All right, we're talking to Elio M. Garcia Jr. and Linda Antonson. They're the co-authors of The World of Ice and Fire, along with George R. R. Martin. And they're also the heads of Westeros.org, which is a website dedicated to all things about Game of Thrones. Okay, The Winds of Winter, the long-awaited book by George R. R. Martin, the sixth book in his Song of Ice and Fire series. What's the deal here? Is, is this going to come out anytime soon? What, what have you guys heard, and what can you tell fans out there? Well, uh, I mean, George has thought in the past that he would have it done by now, and uh, last year he thought he'd have it done. And it, it turns out that uh, it, it's proving a complicated book. To, to wrap everything up. And as everyone knows this has been an issue since ever since the Summer Swords was published. Uh, a Peaceful Crew took a long time, of Death Dragon took a long time. This one's taking a long time. Um, with A Peaceful Crew, well, what happened is he had a, a real structural problem. He had this idea that he was going to jump five years and then just resume the story five years after the last time we saw the characters. And he didn't, he tried it for a year, it didn't work for him. Then he struggled how to tell the story and it took so long, but he, divide, he divided the story into two books. So one book covers one geographical region, one book covers another geographical region. Well, when the Dance of Dragons, the next problem was, well, he was stuck on that region because he had this complicated logistical problem of how to get characters at a certain point at the same time. And he finally solved that one. It looks like for this one, the problem, I'm guessing, is that how he knows that he needs, he really wants it done in seven books. So he's trying to figure out how to move all the characters to the point where some characters die, some characters get taken off the board, and there's a clear path to that final book. So when is the book coming out? Um, when it's finished. <laughs> you know, if it goes at this rate, I was doing a few calculations. Let's say this comes out in 2017. He won't finish the last book, A Dream of Spring, if he writes at this rate, till 2023. And that's maybe being optimistic. I mean, does that concern you at all about how about the pace of him writing these books? Or are we making too much of this? I think um, at the end of the day, uh, there are many generations ahead of us who will not 
really care about how long it took for the book to finish. <laughs> and um, at the same time, um, if the situation comes up, George never quite figures out how to finish a series. Well, you know, he's not the first author to, to not finish a series. And in many cases, uh, there's, you know, commercial reasons for a series not finishing and uh, personal reasons uh, for it not finishing. And, and you know, life goes on. Okay, Linda. Um, one one of the most striking one of the most striking scenes in the finale of the series, uh, uh, the season finale last night, was um, Arya Stark going back to the twins, killing the Frey sons, baking them in a pie, and serving them to Walder Fry, and then slitting his throat. Um, the big question I had is, where did she learn to bake? I thought she wasn't that good at that kind of stuff. Well, I guess she must have picked up some tips from hot pie or something <laughs> like that. Uh, the, unless they had some extracurricular lessons in the, the house of black and white when uh, we weren't watching you know, between she was learning sword play and uh, how to mix up poisons. Apparently there was pie baking included as well. There's a lot of horrible revenge that takes place and the audience is kind of made complicit in it because you're supposed to rejoice that she slits this guy's throat and feeds him his own sons. Um, before that we saw of course, Cersei Lannister torturing that Septa, who was awful, of course, but um, torturing her with her man, the Mountain, and assaulting her in some horrible way. Uh, of course, we saw Sansa Stark unleash um, a, a man's own dogs, uh, have, have them eat his face. And, of course, he was a horrible guy, but still pretty horrible fate. How do you feel about some of this, this, this vengeance that's being served up, both cold and hot, on the show? Just, just as someone who's uh, just from the first five seasons, so uh, the show has taken revenge. The showrunners have taken revenge in a different direction. The, the, the concept of revenge and vengeance in a different direction than sort of thematically you have it in the novels. Um, way back in the first season, you know, Catelyn swearing to Robert, Rob, you know, we'll have our vengeance or, or uh, you know, against the, the Lannisters after Ned's death. Uh, which is a complete 180 from the character in the book, and I, and to me that marked the like the first sign that at the end of the day this is an adaptation, and they they are putting their own spin on it. And in the case of the revenge theme, I think they often fi- feel that it it's a crowd pleaser, and it it's not necessarily something that will consume the good guys. They'll be able to have all the revenge they want and not come out the other end as worse people than they are. That's my take from five seasons. I, I, the sixth season, I can't really remark on. Yeah, I, I have a, a similar feeling, and I am concerned about the, the idea of revenge as a cool thing. Uh, it does seem to be... I mean, it, it's not just Game of Thrones. It's fairly common in uh, a lot of... TV series and movies that the idea of somebody having their their vengeance being a cool thing and I think you you do need to follow that up thematically with the idea that you know having your vengeance will mark you in some way and I don't think we've really been seeing that with characters on the show that they 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 go away from that uh, Unharmed, and they're they're no worse for wear. Uh, it's not even you know going with the idea that you know once you have your vengeance, life might seem a bit 
hollow because you've been living for that one thing so long and now you don't have that driving you. Uh, and it's definitely not people feeling that they had to do things that were, you know, beyond what they were comfortable with to accomplish this vengeance. Which leads us to a little bit of discussion about the larger meaning of Game of Thrones. There's been a lot of talk out there about maybe there's a global warming um, uh, metaphor in there somewhere. I mean, all these characters are caught up in all these intrigues and all this infighting, and yet the real danger is winter is coming. Winter is here now, and all these horrible hordes are coming with it, and yet they haven't yet focused away from all these other crazy things um, to focus on what's really affecting their entire world. But what do you think of that whole theory? I don't put too much stock in it because George, when he talks about his own work, I think, yes, you know, you could discuss whether how much you should trust an author really when it comes to his own work, whether, you know, it can take on other themes than what he intended. But I, I feel that his themes are very much focused on, uh, you know, human emotion and human interactions he he always comes back to i think it's a, a faulkner quote about you know how the you know, the only conflict really worth depicting is sort of it's the human heart heart in conflict with itself and i think that he's not too much for having metaphors and those kind of things play out in his in his work the the idea he does like the contrast between that people are caught up in these political struggles and only a few of them will see that there is a great threat to the realm. But, but that is a fairly typical fantasy trope, uh, whether that threat is, uh, you know, winter and uh, hordes of white walkers or, or some other supernatural threat. Uh, that is uh, not an uncommon at all fantasy trope. And, of course, at the end of Season 6, we see this vast armada um, headed by the uh, the uh, mother of dragons herself, uh, Daenerys Stormborn, heading towards Westeros with the dragons flying overhead. What do you see is happening in Season 7? What are the battle lines going to be? Who's going to be fighting who, do you think? I, I would guess that King's Landing is going to become a focal point fairly quickly because with Cersei having eliminated so many characters from King's Landing, I'm not really sure what else could be going on from her point of view. She'd really only have interactions with Jamie as something to drive her story. So I think there's got to be battles that center on King's Landing fairly quickly. On the other hand, you also have the other Ironborn fleet or the one that Euron is trying to build. Uh, we have Samwell in uh, Old Town, so it's entirely possible that, for example, the, the Ironborn might attack around there. There might be fighting in that region before we get to uh, involving King's Landing directly. But uh, I would expect that sometime during that season we're going to see them heading for King's Landing. Okay, you know, a couple of years ago I had an opportunity to interview George R. R. Martin and one thing he mentioned to me has always stuck with me. He talked about the fact that he doesn't see himself as an architect building a hard and fast blueprint to build his books. He sees himself more as sort of like a gardener where you plant the seeds and you kind of raise up the plants and, and you, you nurture them in certain ways. And that's the way he writes. So I know he passed on ideas and notes to the HBO people about how to develop the series, but 
his, because those are only seeds, his books might be going in a totally different direction. So do you think that, w- that we could be in for a shock when we finally see the winds of winter and finally see a dream of spring and it's completely grown into a different direction than perhaps he'd even originally intended to take the books? I think um, the ending, which he says he gave them, I think he's always said from right from the start, he knew exactly what the ending was. So, but the context of it and the paths to it, I think are going to be quite different. I think even uh, recently, George has talked about how he had an idea for a twist for a character that he hadn't thought of before. Um, and, and he was exploring the idea of using it. And he said, well, the show can't use it because they killed off that character already. So there's always a possibility that there are going to be things that George comes up with that never in a million years would have crossed the mind of uh, the showrunners to do on Game of Thrones. And um, it's just like when you're tra- you know you're planning a journey and you say I'm going to go to San Francisco, and you have a lot of different routes you can take. Um, they're going to go route one route, and George is going to go in some cases quite a different route from them. But the destination will be the same at, in the end. Well, on that note. Elio, Linda, thanks a lot for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Our pleasure. Thank you. Our pleasure. So thanks for joining us for a talk about the Game of Thrones season finale. Uh, Join us again at the Speakeasy Podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.